Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Botchdeeper Podcast. With us is inspiring historian and author of Arthur and Lily, the girl and the Holocaust survivor, Lily Meyer. Her life changed in 2003 when her childhood apartment was visited by a previous resident, Arthur Kern. Arthur had fled this Viennese apartment without his parents or brother decades earlier to escape the Nazis via the Kinder transport or child transports that helped thousands of kids escape Hitler's regime. Lily and I discuss Arthur's journey from Nazi-occupied Austria to the United States and the development of their granddaughter-grandfather type relationship that motivated her groundbreaking research into Arthur's story, as well as the stories from thousands of individuals involved with the Kinder transports. Arthur and Lily's stories are deeply emotional reminders of what is important to cherish in life and how to find joy in the darkest of situations. So, without further ado, here's the episode. Okay, so the story of Arthur and Lily, Arthur and yourself, really begins with your meeting in 2003 at your apartment and his former apartment in Vienna. Could you kind of first explain what life was like for you leading up to that? Uh, I saw that you were born in Munich, but at that point you were living in Vienna, so what was childhood like for you? Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so I was born in Munich um, to two Austrian journalists, uh, which also makes me Austrian. And then we had moved around a lot. So before I started even like elementary school, I had lived in Munich and in Berlin and then in Vienna. Um, but by the time I started school, we were in Vienna. And so it was just like a regular childhood I like to read a lot, um, so I was very interested, I would say, but um, nothing very much out of the ordinary until um, uh, that year. I mean, I was like 10 or 11 years old, so not so much time uh, for things to have happened. And what was it like having two journalists as parents? Uh, difficult question. Um I mean, I would say that I uh, I was always surrounded by books a lot, uh, by reading. I mean, I I, I wrote my first uh, short story slash book, as I called it back then, when I was five years old. So I um, I knew how to write before I started school. So birds were always around, um, and of course, everyone was very curious and interested. But um, other than that, not not that much different, I would say. And did, do you feel that you already had an interest in history at this point? Or is that something that came around after meeting Arthur? No, I don't really think so. I mean, at the time, I was interested in all kinds of things. I I liked uh, uh, ancient Egypt. I liked medieval witches, but um, not so much contemporary history. This was my first encounter then with Arthur. Uh, I w- one of the things that's always interested me uh, about Austrian history is the difficult relationship with uh, the Austrian r- role during World War II and during the Holocaust. Um, the project that your mom helped to connect with Arthur over and his family was A Letter to the Stars. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of explain this project and what the significance was? Sure. Um, so just to clarify, the order of events was uh, I first met Arthur and that's the reason why my mother signed me up for A Letter to the Stars. Um, it's uh, A Letter to the Stars really was the first large student history project that dealt with Austria's Nazi past. And we are talking about the year 2003. So this was decades after Austria. Uh, um, <clears throat> this was decades after similar um, programs in Germany. Um, so really, Austria had this very long past of calling itself the first victim. And I remember how my mother told me that when she went to school in the 70s, um, coincidentally, after World War I, it was always summer break. Um, so she never, ever heard about World War II and about the Holocaust in Austrian schools. Um, and then she went to study and to university in Germany, and she was so surprised to find out about um, how much everyone knew there and how much it was taught at schools at universities. So this was a big difference between um, Austria and Germany. And so A Letter to the Stars 
really was the first big time this changed. Um, and basically it was a student project um, a little while before um, historians had finished uh, creating a list uh, with 80,000 names. So all um, Austrians, all 80,000 Austrians killed uh, in the Holocaust. And so the project, the idea was that you would pick a name and it could be a person that had lived on the same street or in the same house, a person with the same birth date or the same first name. So you would pick a person and try to find out what had happened to them during the Holocaust. Um, and so when my family was first contacted by Arthur, but before we had met him, but we knew that he was coming, um, my mother felt that uh, she wanted um, some background. She wanted there to be more than to for Arthur to come and maybe have cake and coffee and leave again. Um, and that's why she signed me up for this project. Because at this time already, we knew that Arthur was the only survivor of his family. And so my mother was kind of worried what it meant living in an apartment, knowing that everyone was killed except the one person. Um, so she thought that by signing me up for this project and then Arthur helping me with this project, this would kind of like help us process the whole um, story that we um, found out. Yeah. So prior to these events and meeting Arthur for the first time, you two were, uh, from my understanding, completely unaware of the past of your apartment mm-hmm. yeah um, uh, could you was... walk us through that first time meeting arthur in 2003 and yeah, yeah. the significance of it for you yeah um so yes to answer your first question uh, we had no idea about the history of the apartment i mean it was a rental apartment and we had moved in a couple of years before um and so from the time of events uh sometime in the fall of two, uh, 2002 we were contacted by some people that Arthur had met and they asked us uh, they were Viennese and they came to our house and they asked us if we would allow Arthur to visit so we we had about half a year um, before we knew that he was coming Um, and he came in March March 2003 and I was 11 Um, and when I look at photos at the time uh, when I look at photos of the time I really look quite small and very childish uh, and I'm not even yet wearing glasses so it seems uh, very much in the past to me Um, but I remember a lot about the meeting because it had such a big impact in my life Um, and it was a Sunday and Arthur and Trudy had um, come here from California from Los Angeles and basically straight from the airport uh, they drove to the apartment Um, and Arthur walked in uh, and it's uh, for him, it was as if he had never left. Um, he had the perfect memory and he immediately started walking through the apartment. Um, and it's one of these old Viennese turn of the century apartments. So it pretty much looked the same from the layout. It still had the same um, tile stove. Um, so he was just walking around saying, oh, this is the oven and this is where my parents slept and this is uh, what the piano room was. Um, which was my room, my children's bedroom was used to house a piano. Um, And just from the beginning, he was such a positive and open-minded and heartfelt person uh, that it did not feel weird at all that the stranger is running around our apartment, basically giving us a tour of the apartment. Um, And any worries that my mother might have had that it would be a very sad visit um, were immediately vanished because he was such a positive person. Um, And so even then, I would say it did have like uh, an impact on me. It was a very special meeting. I had prepared for the meeting. uh, But then, of course, I never would have uh, anticipated in any way uh, what the meeting would lead up to uh, later. And how did your relationship then develop with Arthur and his wife, Trudy? I know at one point in the book, you say that it was almost like a third set of grandparents for you. Uh, How did you, at a young age, start to understand their past stories and their childhoods? And how did the relationship develop with them in your own life? So (laughs) that's going to be a long answer. Um, 
so I would say basically from the very beginning, I just liked Arthur and Trudy a lot. And um, I can also mention that Arthur still spoke very good German, but as he said, it was the German of a 10 year old. So he did, he had the vocabulary of the time that he was forced to leave Austria um, and he didn't know any adult or grown up words. So we basically had the same vocabulary, um, which is, I think, why from the very beginning, we really enjoyed talking to each other. Um, and Arthur had brought a lot of pictures um, from his family. So um, my mother had asked him to bring this and to help me um, do some research for the A Letter to the Stars program. So basically, um, I was doing a short biography about Arthur's mother, Frida, Frida Kernberg. Um, and to do so, he had brought some documents, some photos, and he answered my questions. So I sort of interviewed him, and then I wrote a short text. Um, and then the Letter to the Stars um, memorial event, which was really very, um, very moving, very meaningful, is that there were 80,000 white balloons, and we attached 80,000 uh, letters to the stars, uh, to these balloons um, and they were sent uh, up the sky and so I wrote a letter um, to Frida uh, telling her about the meeting uh, with Arthur it's really a very if I look at it today it's a very naive and very um, almost embarrassing letter but um, then I was 11 at the time um, I must say I, I personally I found it very endearing oh thank you very much <laughs> 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 yes oh no I was like oh god I was very young when I wrote it um but um yes I mean from the way the story developed from there and how it became so important for our lives is that then this project a letter to the stars really used me for publicity a lot um because it was a nice story me meeting Arthur we um we both lived in the same apartment six years apart and um, so they used me for publicity and I did a lot of interviews for American and Israeli media and also for German media. Um, and then the one particular article that really shaped everything is an article that appeared in the Viennese uh, daily newspaper Courier. And um, the article is not even as important. What's important is the picture I'm holding. So in this article, there's a photo of 11-year-old me and I'm holding a photo of Frida, of Arthur's mother. And then this photo was recognized by a woman um, reading the newspaper, an elderly lady, and she kept calling the, the newspaper, demanding to speak to my family. And everyone was very annoyed by her and thought she was crazy, but no one was really getting any work done. So in the end, uh, they asked my mother to call this crazy woman and uh, to speak to her and find out what she wants. And it turns out that she was not crazy at all, but she was almost uh, 80 or 90 years old. And for over 60 years, she had been keeping a package from Arthur's parents. So she recognized the photo of Frida that I was holding. Um, and basically what had happened in the 40s, in 1942, is that Arthur's father, Hermann, had uh, shortly before they were deported, he had packed a package, a parcel, um, and he put documents inside and photos and insurance policies. Um, and he gave it to a friend of his um, because he was always very um, optimistic. And he was hoping that if they come back from Poland, from the deportation, that with this um, package, he can start his life again. Um, and then if not, then there is Arthur who was um, safe in another country. And then Arthur could get this package. Um, but this friend that he gave it to, he was also afraid of getting arrested. So he gave it to his 18-year-old cousin. And this 18-year-old cousin is the woman who 60 years later recognized the photo. Um, and the story is, in fact, even more complicated and has more details. She usually did not read this kind of newspaper. And um, so it was a ton, like hundreds of coincidences that had to happen uh, for her to see the photo and um, for Arthur and me to have met uh, during this time where an article would be written about it and then for him to be able to get this package back. And this had a huge emotional impact on him. Um, I mean, he had basically he had nothing. He had a couple of photos and some letters from his parents and now he got this whole package. 
Um, so it was very emotional for him. And because it was so emotional for him, it became the foundation of a very strong friendship with my family. Because, of course, meeting my family was what got all this started. Um, and Arthur was also, um, he was always someone um, who treated friends as family because he didn't have a lot of biological um, relatives. So he always made his family. And so we became part of this family. Um, and really after only like three or four years, when I first visited um, him in Los Angeles, he would introduce me to everyone as his Austrian granddaughter. Um, and this is really how it feels for me too. I have spent more time with him and his family than with my actual uh, grandparents, I would say. Destiny, perhaps. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> um, so you mentioned how uh, Arthur's father, Hermann, mm -hmm. had the foresight to leave some uh, some of these packages and like important items uh, so that he could retrieve them later on when things were safer or perhaps Arthur could. Uh, another podcast that we recently did for the Vojtiver Institute was discussing the life of Sigmund Freud and his mm -hmm. escape from uh, Nazi-controlled Austria. And something that's really stood out to me is how, in hindsight, it's very clear that people, especially Jewish people, needed to flee at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, depending on the individual, the willingness to leave or the understanding of the urgency uh, sometimes lagged behind the events or just wasn't as clear in the moment. How much foresight do you think that Hermann had and what was childhood like for Arthur and like how much did things change in the lead up to the Nazi takeover? So it's hard to say how much foresight he had, but um, the Hermann uh, was such a strong optimist that I would say even though he did have chances to emigrate um, earlier and he did... I mean, he even traveled to Switzerland two times um, for business after the Nazis came to power um, and after uh, the Nazis annexed Austria. So he did really have um, the means and also the context to, he could have tried to leave earlier, but he was very optimistic. He always thought the best and he was a very strong monarchist. So he still like believed of the old Austria and he liked Vienna and he didn't want to leave. And so um, he let some chances pass. And it's very late uh, comparatively in February um, of 39 when a brother-in-law um, who was deported uh, comes back and tells them about the concentration camps. And that's when the family decides to leave. And at this time, it's already incredibly hard. Uh, so... I would not say that he had a lot of foresight. Um, and in the whole family history, it's often described that the women of the family uh, had more foresight um, than the men. And that like some uh, aunts and uncles of Arthur's, they survived because uh, the women were the, the ones pushing for emigration. Um, but in the case of Arthur's parents, um, it was a very long time before they even considered emigration. Um, and um, about his childhood, I can say that he grew up in a typical um, middle-class Jewish family, or I would say maybe like upper middle-class. Uh, the family owned a factory, um, very large apartment that he grew up in. He always had um, live-in nannies um, because his mother was also working. Um, and he grew up in a Jewish way, but the father was more religious than the others. So he went to a public school, only to the synagogue on the high holidays. Um, but he he really could feel the change then uh, when the annexation, the Anschluss of Austria happened. Um, because he was always a good student, but then this, um, he was forced to sit in the back of the classroom. And then at the end of the school year, he was not allowed to go to a gymnasium, a high school. Um, there were instances where he was beaten up by the Hitler youth. Uh, so he always said that he had a pretty good understanding of why he was forced, um, why his parents sent him away. Yeah. And then 
when it was being decided that he would uh, be on one of the kinder transports and unfortunately and very traumatically for him, his older brother Fritz would not mm-hmm. be included on that list. What was that process like? How did the kinder transports come about and how did those events unfold? So basically the kinder transport is the largest rescue operation that took place uh, during the Holocaust. And today we say that it's 15,000 children um, that could be saved because their parents were willing to separate from them and uh, to send them to a foreign country by themselves on the kinder transport, on the children's transport. Um, And these transports went uh, to Great Britain and to France, uh, to Sweden and Belgium and Switzerland, uh, United States, Palestine. So there were a lot of different um, transports. And what they all had in common is that they were incredibly bureaucratic. Um, So there were a lot of like uh, medical examinations um, that had to be done. The children had to be perfectly healthy. There was a lot of like um, paperwork. They had to have everything copied seven times. Um, So there was really quite a strong selection. And in hindsight, uh, we have to say that if they had selected less carefully, they would have saved a lot more children because World War One, uh, World War Two broke out earlier than everyone had expected, and the the beginning of the war meant an immediate end to all the kinder transports. Um, but they didn't notice, and so they thought um, they need to select nice and healthy children so that uh, when they come to England or when they come to France, the people there like them, and if they like them, then they will allow more refugee children to be sent. And so this is why they made this very strong selection. Um, And as you mentioned, tragically, um, only Arthur was selected and his older brother Fritz was not. Um, And Fritz was suffering from a form of epilepsy. And that's why he also had a lot of problems in school. And this is um, probably why he was not allowed in a kinder transport. Um, But for Arthur, personally, this was... um, such a terrible um, thing. It was so hard for him to understand or to process, I would say, that um, through most his life, he would always say his brother was too old for the kinder transport. He could not process that the brother had not been selected because he was not as healthy as himself. Um, even though Arthur knew older, uh, older children on the kinder transport. He would tell everyone who ever asked uh, that Fritz was too old. So this um, separation and selection was very hard for him. One of the more touching parts of the book, at least for me personally, was that right before he left on the kinder transport, Arthur, even at the age of 10, was aware enough that it would be a long time before he saw his family again that he went to the photo album and took some precious photos of his family that he kept with him for the rest of his life. Uh, how aware was he of the situation at the time? And how and uh, what was the actual process like of leaving his family? I think it's a very interesting question because um, on the one hand, Um, His parents kept telling him that it's going to be a short separation. And also in all the letters they wrote to him later, they always say, oh, we're going to see each other again soon in America. Um, And when I interviewed him for the uh, book, um, Arthur also said that he believed them, so that he believed that it was going to be a short separation. But then at the same time, at the age of 10, he basically went uh, to the parents photo album and he stole photos and because he wanted to have a reminder of them and I think this shows a lot of foresight in at least having the fear that he will not see them again soon Um, and then he also wrote a sort of like diary entry or letter where he says I am 10 years old and I'm forced to leave my country and my family um, and he left this at home in Vienna, so his parents found uh, found the letter. Um, so I think that this shows a lot of foresight, actually. Um, but the whole process was very quick. I mean, his parents uh, signed him up for a kinder transport in February. 
uh, and uh, in beginning of March already he was in France. So it was very quick. You did not have a lot of time to process all of this. And when he arrived in France, uh, I believe this is the first time he meets Ernst Papanek. What was the situation like there? And who, how, how would you describe Ernst Papanek as an individual? Yeah. So I think um, for people who have heard about the kindertransport, they always have heard about the kindertransport to England, which was much bigger. It saved 10,000 children. Um, and it also had a different concept. So most of the children on the British kindertransport came to foster families. And in France, it was a much smaller kindertransport, only about 200 children. Um, and from the very beginning, they had planned collective housing. So they wanted to put these children in homes, in children's homes. And uh, But for them, it was not seen as like a an emergency situation and we don't have any families. They deliberately wanted to put them in houses to be able to look after them properly. Um, and these houses um, were run by Ernst Papanek, who was an Austrian, an Austrian teacher, Austrian politician, exiled politician, um, who really created an enormously progressive um, concept for the running of these refugee children's houses. And uh, so it really is thanks to him, I would say, that Arthur and the other children had um, such... Well, first of all, they had a wonderful time there until the war started. Everyone um, to this day is always talking about how great it was in the home in France. But Ernst Papanek gave them a lot of the tools to be able to survive the war psychologically. And I think you really could see this uh, in the Arthur that I met, in the adult, older Arthur, who was such a happy man and who had made such peace with his terrible past. And I do believe that this is why, um, because Ernst Papanek treated the children in a way um, that he taught them to be able to overcome their trauma. Could you kind of talk further into that? Because one of the interesting things I found out was that after escaping the war and later in life, a lot of the OSE children not only lived good lives, but thrived. And they were three Nobel Prize winners, as you note. And um, a lot of them credited Papanek and his approaches for giving them the mental fortitude, the mental tools to thrive later in life. What were some of those approaches that you think were the most beneficial? Yeah, and it really is quite a fascinating story after. Um, and this is actually, as a historian, um, the first uh, re big research project I did was, um, it was called Life After the Kindertransport, and it looked how their lives had developed. Um, I have uh, to clarify one thing is that all the kindertransport children became very professionally successfully. So these three Nobel Prizes is not among the French uh, kindertransport children, it's among all the kindertransport children. Um, and there's various reasons. Um, it's a combination of the good Austrian or German schooling they had and then the, the opportunities they had when they came to America, um, why they became so professionally successful. But uh, you really can see a big difference in their mental health. Um, and you can really see that the children who lived under Ernst Papanek um, as adults were much better able to handle their traumatic experiences. Um, and Ernst Papanek really installed a very large um, system to help them with this. He had these children homes, there were four homes in total, and then they were also being taught at the schools. Um, he started first to slowly um, teach them again what school meant, because in Nazi Germany, a Jewish child had not received proper schooling in years. So he did a lot of field trips with them. He, uh, he took the school benches and he put them in a garden. He tried to make learning fun. Um, he also taught them a lot of trades. So the children um, had theoretical classes, but also trade classes, crafts classes. Arthur became a carpenter. And then one of the big parts of um, Papanek's process is that he created a 
student um, co-administration. Um, so there were a lot of democratic processes involved. Um, there was a parliament for the students. There was a court. There was a lot of committees, like a, a party committee, a sports committee, a home committee. Um, there were a lot of democratic institutions, uh, you might call them. And this was meant to show the children, um, first of all, to teach them democracy after having lived in a Nazi dictatorship. But it was mainly used to show them that when they, if they make a decision, it has consequences. And that they, again, have the power over their own life. That it's not the Nazis deciding what's happening to them. It's uh, themselves deciding that. Um, he also had therapy for the children. Um, there was um, like group therapy and art therapy. Although the children never really realized that they were in therapy, but that's what happened. Um, but it was, whole, it was his whole attitude. So Ernst Papanek always said that his job is to make these children happy and to make them feel like children again. So he also created, um, like he also celebrated a lot of parties. He said, how do you make a child feel like a child? You, you do a party. So every birthday, every national or Jewish holiday, there was a big party, there was a circus, there was like soda and sweets and uh, poems and sketches. So it was really a lot of like fun until the war started. And as Arthur is kind of integrating into the system in France with the other refugee children, what is happening with his family back in Vienna? So as I um, said before, the family was always very optimistic and they did try to leave. Um, they had several contacts abroad, but nothing really worked out. Um, so in the end, they were among the last uh, Jewish families who were still in Vienna, who had not managed to um, flee from Vienna. And so they were among the last group of Jews who were then deported in 1941. Um, and they were deported uh, to Poland, uh, to a small countryside ghetto in Poland. Um, but even at the time in their letters, they were still able to send letters to Arthur. Um, and they never really showed him. They never really told him what was going on. So it was still very optimistic, joyful letters saying we will see each other soon in America. Um, so they never really told him the truth. I was surprised to find how long he was able to stay in contact with his family, sending letters to and from. How were they able to continue writing each other despite the hardships they were going through and the breakout of the war? Yeah, it is really quite fascinating and even somewhat absurd in this terrible Nazi logic where we were sending thousands of Jews to a small village in Poland and we're not giving them any food and they're basically there to die but the postal service is still working um, so they were able to send letters um, it was a sort of complicated way because you could not uh, you could not send mail between uh, between countries that were at war so what they did is that they knew someone in Switzerland so they Arthur's parents would send a letter to Switzerland and then the Swiss person would send it to France and in a sort of trying away this is how they would communicate um, so of course it took very long took weeks or months um, but at the same time many other people at this time were not able to communicate anymore and so they at least had this version of writing letters and uh, in the beginning I've <laughs> my French is not very good, so I, I can't remember the names perfectly of the different houses that Arthur stayed at. But he yeah. starts off in the north of France, and then as the war breaks out, they're forced to flee to a house in the south of France. Uh, could you explain why this happened and what that uh, transition was like for Arthur? Sure. Um, so basically, one of the big differences between the French and, let's say, the British Kinder transport is, of course, that the Germans invade France. Um, and so this happens in 1940. Um, after a long time of fighting, nothing really happens. And then all of a sudden it goes very quickly. Within four weeks, the Germans uh, reach Paris. 
Um, and at the time, of course, millions of people were already trying to flee to the south of France. Um, and these refugee children really should have been among the first group of people being evacuated. I mean, they were in a threefold danger. They were children and they were Jewish children and they were German Jewish children. So they really were in extreme danger. Um, and the problem was that the organization taking care of them, OSE, they were not able to get travel permits for them. Because at the time, the French government was uh, doing a lot of censorship. Today, you would probably say they were doing fake news and they were telling everybody that they were winning the war. And so they were afraid that if you start evacuating children's homes, it will create a mass panic uh, because people will realize that it has to be bad um, if you're evacuating children's homes. And this means that it's really only like six or seven days before the German army reaches Paris that finally these refugee children are allowed to go on a train. And so it's a very traumatic um, experience for them. Arthur described it later a lot, saying that he saw bombed out cities and he saw um, dead people and they did not have any food and it felt like they traveled for days. So it was a very strenuous and um, traumatic experience for these refugee children to um, flee to the south of France. Um, but they made it to the unoccupied part of France, uh, or Vichy France, as it's called. Um, and then at the beginning, everyone thought that they were going to be safe there because they were in the, on, in the unoccupied part of France. And how long were they in France following that period and how was Arthur able to eventually get to the United States? So let me calculate. Um, in total, he was only in France about a year and a half, um, which makes it quite impressive um, considering later in his life what a big impact this time had. It really was not that long of a time. Um, so he came to France in March 39, then they fled to the south in the summer of 1940, and then they um, were evacuated from the south of France uh, in the summer of 41. Um, and how this happened is a very long story, um, but basically uh, a dozen organizations in Europe and in America uh, started organizing an American kinder transport, which is very unknown today. Uh, a lot of people have never heard that there was an American kinder transport. Um, the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, was very involved in this. Ernst Papanek also, who by this time was in New York. Um, and through these very complicated uh, bureaucratic hurdles of four countries involved, uh, they did manage to get about 250 children out of France, then first uh, through Spain, through Portugal, and then from Portugal, on a ship to the United States. When you're piecing together the stories of these children, uh, you reference a lot that they had written autobiographies or the protégés of OSE and the different organizations connected to the Kinder Transports wrote or they published their journals or they wrote their own autobiographies. What was it like trying to piece together these different stories and how much overlap or lack of overlap was there between them it really is kind of like i don't know like a detective in a crime show um it was a lot of like looking for small details um and of course the reason for that is that the story is so transnational so uh, there is documents and archives um in vienna and in france and in america and they're split up in a very different uh, or weird way. Um, so it's always a lot of piecing together small um, elements of the story. Um, but uh, as you mentioned, a number of these children did write about their experiences. Um, and the stories they describe are all very similar to the stories that Arthur told me. Um, and then I also interviewed about a dozen or more um, of these former children um, and talk to them about the time in France um, and about Arthur, of course, about Ernst Papanek, about their experiences after the war. 
Um, so there was a lot of researching involved. After Arthur arrives in the United States, what is his impression of the country? Where is he mentally at that point? Um, I know he is still briefly in contact with his family by the time he gets to the United States. Uh, so what, are the, what, are, what is his new setting like? So he comes to the United States. He is 12 and he very soon turns 13. Uh, so he has his bar mitzvah, which is a very important um, stepstone, milestone in the life of a Jewish boy. And for this um, event, uh, he receives the last letter ever from his parents. So it's a very, very heartwarming, touching letter uh, for his bar mitzvah. Um, and for him, this is like the low point of his life. This is the saddest point of his life. I mean, yes, technically, um, if you look at it from a bit of a distance, he is finally safe. He is in the United States. There are no Nazis. There is no um, war. There is no hunger. Um, but he feels very much alone. And this is um, because at the time, uh, the ideas of the American social um, services was that uh, children should sep um, that refugee children should become American as quickly as possibly, and to do so is to separate them. Um, so they broke um, they broke up the group of the USA children. They sent them all over the country. They did not give them each other's addresses, um, and this was incredibly traumatic for the children. Um, so a lot of these children today, when they talk about their time in France, they use the word family and they say Arthur was my brother or uh, Eva was my sister. So during this very intensive time period in France, they really had become a sort of second family. And this had helped them tremendously overcome the trauma of the separation from their parents. But now they were in America and they were split up. And no one explained them anything. Um, and they felt betrayed by Ans Papanek and by everyone else. And uh, of course, they did not know how hard Ans Papanek had tried and fight, uh, tried and fought uh, for them to stay together. They only knew the effects, the end effects, and that is that they were alone. And so Arthur also, he was in a foster family and he felt incredibly sad and alone and he never much talked about this time he, it really was the lowest point of his life the story is written in a way where you very deeply go into depth with arthur's story but throughout you're also explaining your own relationship with him the other cairns or kerns i'm honestly not <laughs> sure if they pronounced it in the very americanized way or the more german can no no american Kern. <laughs> um did you always intend for the book to be in almost like a dual biographical style where you were including your own experiences and relationships or was it, did you have another plan at first? So for me to write a story of Arthur, um, I never even considered writing it another way because I'm so involved in the story. I feel um, I am part of the story. Uh, of course, only the later parts of the story, but very crucial because through the meeting and through getting this package is how we, we now know a lot of the things in Arthur's family's past. Um, so I personally really couldn't have written it other way, in any other way. Um, it was suggested to me to write it as a novel because um, novels sell better. But then again, it, I could never have told a story that is so true and so important to my life and then say it's a made-up story. Um, so maybe I could someday write another Kindertransport book and make it up. But uh, for this, it was very clear to me it had to be nonfiction. Uh, and that the connection of Arthur and me also had to be part of it. Um, and it was also very important for me to write the book till the present. So a lot of books about Holocaust survivors <clears throat> and also a lot of autobiographies by Holocaust survivors end in 1945. Uh, so they tell the whole story of the war. They tell the kindertransport that saved them. And then they're maybe like 15 or 16 years old and the war ends and the rest of their lives is written up in two pages. 
And I find this is, you cannot stop a story. I mean, Arthur was 16. How can you stop telling his life just because the war ends? So it was very important for me to tell it uh, until the time I was writing it. Um, so until the present time. And so then naturally I was going to be a part of it. Yeah. So Arthur arrives in New York and he's with a foster family at first. Uh, later on, he moves in briefly with his uh, other family members that have escaped his aunt and uncle. Uh, how does he end up meeting Trudy? And yeah, what was his early life like in the United States? So as I as I said, um, for him it was a very sad period when he came to the United States. Um, but then it improved and he was a very good student. Uh, so he went to Stuyvesant High School, which still today is a famous school. And so he got a scholarship um, to be able to study and he became an engineer. Um, and at university is where he met Trudy. Um, and how he met Trudy is really the, the craziest story of it all. I mean, I often say that I could have called the book 1001 Coincidences because there are so many coincidences. I mean, how Arthur and I met is a huge coincidence, uh, but then really how Arthur and Trudy met <laughs> is the is the much bigger, um, crazier coincidence. Um, and basically, I mean, uh, they were sitting next to each other in class alphabetically, and he was kind of like cheating and looking over at her, at her notes and what she was doing during an exam. And then uh, she suggested that maybe they should be studying instead of him cheating. Um, and so they, they met and they started studying. Um, and really what no one knew um, is that they had uh, been neighbors before or almost neighbors um, over 10 years ago um, in Vienna. So Trudy had also come from Vienna um, by herself, had lived in New York, um, and also to understand how, how maybe how crazy it is that the two of them ended up. It's important to know that Trudy really always said that she wanted to be a real American and she wanted to marry only a real American. She really did not want to have anything to do with immigrants from the old country. She did not want to uh, have another connection to Austria and um, she wanted a real American um, and Arthur had not the slightest bit of an accent whereas Trudy today still sounds like she stepped off the boat yesterday she has a terrible German accent uh, but Arthur had no accent whatsoever so uh, they met and she thought he must be a real American because he has no accent and really, it was only when she introduced him to her parents and all of them started speaking German um, that she found out uh, the whole story. Um, but by then it was too late and she also had fallen in love. So they stayed together and were very happy. What have you learned uh, from Arthur and Trudy about love, relationships and family? Hmm. <laughs> It's a deep one. <laughs> it is a deep one, yeah, but it's, um, but it's a fitting question, I think, because you can learn a lot uh, from them about that. And as I said, really for Arthur, um, friends meant family. Um, so he had an enormous amount of love to give and he had a huge family and it didn't matter that he was not related to them by blood. So all these former children from France um, as adults, they became very close and they became like the uncles and aunts for their own children and they spent the holidays together. Um, and so it was very natural for them to open their arms and invite one more stranger, let's say, into the family heart. Um, but then I think also you can learn so much from Arthur about his attitude towards life. And really he was one of the happiest um, person, one of the happiest people I ever met in my life. Um, and this is because very early on in his life, he had made a conscious decision to stop hating the Nazis. And he was maybe like 18 or 19 years old. This was before he even met Trudy, um, where he realized that he he hates the Nazis and he hates Austria. And um, 
but the only one suffering from this hate is himself. The Nazis didn't know that he hated them. Um, and so he was suffering from it and the people um, in his life were suffering from it. And so he really made this incredibly grown up uh, decision to forgive the Nazis and to stop hating. Um, and I think, I mean, everything that Ernst Papanek had taught him plays into this a lot. Um, he was not the only of the Osage children who had like a very positive outlook on life. Um, but I mean, still, he was like 18 or 19 years old. So it was a very uh, humongous decision to make, but it allowed him such a happier life. And I've uh, worked with a lot of Holocaust survivors um, over the last two decades. And you really can see a difference in how they in their how their outlook shaped their future lives and their families. How has this affected your understanding of uh, like career success or just success in general and happiness? I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know if it has affected my understanding of career success. I mean, it is a remarkable story how successful all these uh, kinder transport children became. Um, and there is a couple of them who had grown up like in the total German countryside who would never have seen a university if they had not been expelled um, by the Nazis and then were sent on a kinder transport. So even they commented how this kind of tragic, ironic way um, is how Hitler pushed them um, out of their lives and uh, traumatized them and killed their family members, but it meant that they became had an understanding in their life. So that maybe into every situation that you end up with, you have to find, you have to fight out your way and make the best out of that. Um, and in like the sense of happiness, I would really say that it shows that you make your own happiness and that these conscious decisions to decide to be happy uh, really has a great impact. And um, it goes down to the next generation. Like um, you really can see such a difference in the second generation, the children of Holocaust survivors and how their parents treated their story and their trauma um, and how they were then able to deal with that. Has this had any impact on your own connection to religion? Because uh, interestingly, early on, Arthur was moved from the, I don't know what the right word is, like standard home in France <laughs> to the more orthodox home uh, for the Jewish children. And then you also mentioned at one point your first time celebrating Christmas away from your family, the different Jewish Holocaust survivors threw you a Christmas party despite being Jewish themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of role did religion play in Arthur's life and how has his story maybe affected your own understanding of religion? So I would say it has not really affected my own understanding because I'm an atheist and I've never had any religion. Um, but uh, it is... Um, something that comes up a lot. I mean, every time I'm in America and I talk about the story or I give a talk about the kinder transport, everyone is incredibly amazed by the fact that I'm not Jewish. Um, and so it does come up a lot. And of course, I'm, um, I'm getting my PhD in Jewish history. So I know more about Judaism than I know about any other religion. Um, but for Arthur as well, it was a very cultural concept of Judaism. So um, he did wrongly end up in France in an Orthodox children's home. So he had a period of a forced religion, I would say. Um, and he kept it for going for a while in America. And you can read in his foster care files that he's very strict. Um, but then this over time completely stops. And as an adult, um, he felt very Jewish. And it was important for him to um, raise his sons as Jewish, but it was not never about religion. Um, and so this is something that you have with a lot of Holocaust survivors, where you say you have this kind of like cultural Jew um, who after the Holocaust doesn't believe in God anymore, because how could God have like let the Holocaust happen? But they still identify as Jewish a lot. Um, 
and maybe in this sense it did shape how I feel um, because uh, like I said I'm an atheist but I grew up in a Christian country so I do celebrate Christmas um, and so by the same definition I'm a cultural Christian and uh, this is a word no one uses and it's certainly nothing I would ever have considered uh, describing myself with um, but it it is kind of the same concept of how they identify as uh, not religious, um, but they would still celebrate Jewish holidays. Like many of the other survivors, when Arthur came to the United States, uh, he well, originally at the time, Oswald Kernberg, he switched uh, his first name and last name for two different reasons. The first name, I believe he changed because Oswald or Oswald was a very uncommon name in the U.S. at the time, so the other kids would make fun of him for it. Uh, but his last name, I believe he changed because he didn't want his Jewish identity to be as present. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always wondered why Arthur and other survivors like him did not revert their last names back to the original form later in life. Could you speak to that? It's an interesting question. I never really thought much about uh, reverting back. I mean, the initial impulse to change it is, as you said, uh, the first name Oswald, no one had ever really heard about it except that uh, a comic, um, a cartoon by Walt Disney was called like that. Um, and so uh, he changed the name to Arthur which is uh, what confuses German readers of this book, that it's called Arthur and Lily, and it's not called Arthur uh, and Lily, because he never was an Arthur. He was only ever an Arthur, um, because the German name was Oswald. Um, And then, yes, the Kernberg became Kern to sound less Jewish. Um, And I don't think anyone really ever considered changing their names back. I mean, then you change it, and then you become nationalized, so you become an American, and then you get married, and then that's the name that the children have. So I think it's a it would be an enormous amount of work, actually, but also of identity changing to switch it back, which maybe you can also see in the story of Trudy, where uh, Trudy's father um, renamed the family a name that everyone hated and no one had agreed upon. They were supposed to be called cats and he renamed them. No, sorry. They were called cats and they decided to be called Karen. But when he went to the court office, he randomly called them Kellogg's. But no one ever changed it. So um, kind of like you had to name it and you stuck with it. Uh, To pivot a little bit, you traveled to a lot of the different locations that Arthur also was at. Uh, throughout his journey to the United States, which of these locations really stood out to you or had the deepest impact on yourself personally? Yeah, so what I did is I basically, I followed his escape. Um, so I started in from Austria and I went to all the places um, in France uh, and later also in Portugal and uh, in New York in the United States that played an important role in his life, um, which is something that, as a historian from a professional level, I don't understand why not more historians do this because it gives you such a deeper understanding of of the story you're writing about because it's the one thing to know pictures. And for example, with these children homes, um, I knew them from descriptions from Arthur and from his friends. So they were children when they when they lived there and so they described it as much larger and much more castle-like than it actually was so even to kind of like get an understanding of the the size and the spacing um but then I did have the most wonderful touching experiences when I went to these places um like I the one home specifically stands out the Villa Helvetia which is the first children homes he was at um and today it's a police station. Um, so I went there and like it's this kind of like elite police that they sent into Paris when there's trouble. Um, and none of them had any idea of the history of the building. And they had never heard that they were refugee children 
or that they were refugee children by themselves because France allowed them in, but France did not allow their parents in. Um, so also being able to tell them the story um, was one of the very uh, meaningful experiences. Uh, among the places you visited were also a number of Holocaust memorials, but you mm -hmm. note specifically that the one that stood out to you the most or stood out to you to a large extent was the Memorial de la Shoah in France. Uh, what do you think makes this such a good Holocaust memorial and uh, with the kind of controversy or debate, I guess, that there has been around memorials like the one in Berlin, uh, where do you think some memorials may fall short? Over my life in the last years, I mean, I have been to a lot of Holocaust I have been to a lot of Holocaust memorials and I do actually work at the Dachau concentration camp memorial site as a guide. Um, and so I think at first, I mean, there's the, there's a difference between a German or an Austrian memorial site versus all the other countries. Um, because in Germany or in Austria, you have to um, consider the role as a perpetrator much more. Um, but this is what I like about uh, the, the Memorial de la Shoah that you just mentioned in France, is that um, they were an occupied country. And so a lot of other countries that were occupied, like Poland, uh, would uh, simply talk about um, the German crimes and how they affected uh, the local population. Um, but what they do in the French um, Holocaust Museum is that they also talk about the French crimes and about the fact that the unoccupied south of France was very um, much working together with the Nazis in the occupied part and that they were even like deporting children. And so this is the kind of like self-critical view that maybe today also you have in Austria where like decades ago in an Austrian um memorial site you would never have said that Austrians were also perpetrators um, and so this is the same change I would say that has happened in France um, but it has not happened in a lot of other countries and I mean when you go to like Auschwitz and Poland um, you become a very Polish version of the story um, that is very hard as a historian to listen to so um, I do think that the one in Paris is a very good example. Also, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. is a really well-made one. Um, but then, of course, in D.C., you don't have the whole problem about talking about your own crimes. Sadly, uh, with Arthur passing away in 2015 and a lot of other Holocaust survivors now being in their very later years of life, uh, what do you think is the most important thing to take away from these stories and what do you think needs to be done uh, within the field of remembering the Holocaust and history in the future? I mean, this is, as you say, this really is a big problem. And I think it is especially a big problem uh, for young people and um, like in schools um, where you will not have um, the experience of meeting a Holocaust survivor. And I know it from here, I mean, I went to high school in Austria, but it's like similar in Germany, for example. You you teach the Holocaust a lot. You teach World War II for over a year. But the one thing that every student remembers is when they met a Holocaust survivor. And uh, it's this personal connection that speaks uh, much more directly to a person and uh, is also much more able to really reach a person Um and with the growing rise of anti-Semitism and hate violence all over the world, it really is a problem that there's less and less Holocaust survivors who can go to schools. Um, and so one way that I am trying to kind of like work against this is that I have been going to a lot of schools with the book, with Orphan Lily, and kind of like as a stand-in telling Arthur's story which is not the same, but it still reaches students on a deeper level than if they just have a regular history class. Because uh, it's the story of one individual, Arthur, who is about the same age they are in when I meet them, 
And I can tell them how much my life and my career was influenced by meeting Arthur. So they do feel that this personal connection and this personal level. Um, and so I have been doing this a lot in the last four or five years, um, trying to go to schools and kind of like telling Arthur's story and uh, keeping it alive and hoping that this helps against um, yeah, the loss of remembrance. Are there any final words you would like to give or that you think Arthur would have liked to give if he still could at the moment before we go? Hmm. I was just <laughs> don't, also, don't feel pressured. To say. No. <laughs> um, I mean, what I can say is uh, that it means a lot to me that this book is coming out in English and it was a long process of getting it translated, but uh, no one in Arthur's family speaks German. Um so this alone was reason enough um, to get it translated. Um, and I actually promised Arthur on his deathbed uh, that I would translate the book. So he knew I was writing it. Um, and it's very sad uh, that he never got to read it. But um, now at least um, his family will get to read it. And so this means a lot to me. Thank you so much for being on, Lily. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, keep an eye out for new content across our various social media platforms linked below. You can also find more from our guests and their work in the description. The Bochdieper Institute for Austrian American Studies promotes an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the lands of the former Habsburg Empire, by awarding grants and fellowships, organizing lectures and conferences, and publishing the Journal of Austrian American History. We engage with a broader public audience through digital programming, including videos, podcasts, and blog posts. Auf Wiedersehen, and see you next time.